Uh, my name is Stephen. Um, I, uh, I sort of, I'm a person who sort of wears two hats. For some hours of the day, for some days of the week, I am this like pastor theologian person, right? I'm a, I'm a youth director. We Methodists call those directors, not pastors. But I'm a youth director at First UMC in Redondo Beach up by LAX. You know, and then, and I do that. I'm being ordained by the United Methodist Church. I'm a very barely published theologian, right? Like, I'm, I've got this hat that I wear. I've got this other hat that I wear um, where some hours of my day and some days of the week, I work for a small human rights nonprofit called Inalienable. Inalienable exists to defend the rights and dignity of migrants. And uh, we'll talk more about that a little bit in the sermon, but a lot in a meeting that is apparently happening after church. Um, I'd invite you all to be there. I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about Inalienable's work and what we're doing and how that might interact with RISE or, or you as individuals. Um, but here we're here in church right now. Um, the passage we're going to read today is in the book of Acts. Many of, you, many of you who grew up around church know that that first generation of Christians was initially almost entirely Jewish. They were almost entirely Jewish people who were used to thinking about everyone else, which is called Gentiles, being the people who oppressed them. And so when Jesus came and he announced the kingdom and he had all these promises about the future and that the future could be different, Jewish folks thought that promise was for the Jews. And it took them a few minutes to realize that actually that promise was for literally everyone. Uh, the way the book of Acts tells the story is that Peter was the first one to really put it together. Um, and what we're going to read today, what I'm going to read for you today is um, when Peter realizes it. Peter's literally sitting in the house of a Roman army official who should be like the worst of the worst in Peter's previous way of thinking. And he realizes that God's blessings and Jesus' promises are for everyone. Robert, why don't you come read for us? Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. 
All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of God for the people of God. I, uh, I was excited my first day of university at Biola University. As a son of a Pentecostal pastor, I was excited to be going to Bible college, you know, and my very first day of class, I, I had intro to New Testament with John Lundy. Do you know John Lundy? Yeah, intro to New Testament with John Lundy. And, you know, we get through the syllabus, and then uh, Dr. Lundy asks us this question. He says, what is the most important thing for Jesus's earthly ministry? What was the most important thing to him? Now, as a son of fundamentalism, I knew that answer. That answer is saving us from our sins so that when we die, we can go to heaven. John Lundy said, he said, New Testament scholars are almost unanimous in noting that the most important thing for Jesus was announcing and kickstarting the kingdom of God. <laughs> Blew my little mind. The kingdom of God, you guys know, the kingdom of God is this thing that Jesus talks about that, if you just say it in plain English, is at least this. It's at least a time, thing, space that is coming when everything that's broken in human society is fixed, where everything that's messed up in the world is healed. Jesus, in, in my thinking, started that and invited us to participate in that, and then maybe one day he'll return and finish it. I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I at least know that we're called to participate in that. And that's what happened to Peter here. Peter realized that that call was not only for his own people, the people in his own country, the people of his own ethnicity. He realized that call was for everyone. It wasn't just a promise to fix all of Jewish society, but literally all of human civilization. I, uh, I used to hang out in this Christian bookstore. When I was 19, I would hang out in this Christian bookstore in this little town I lived in, in Clovis, New Mexico. That's in eastern New Mexico. If you think of New Mexico as a beautiful place, you haven't been to Clovis. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, so I would hang out in this Christian bookstore. I had friends that worked there. The only coffee shop in town was right next door, and I, I like to read a lot. And there was, uh, they were bringing in a guy to paint a mural. He was a missionary. He had been in Thailand for a few months and was trying to figure out what the next steps were for him and his family. And in the interim, he was going to paint this mural. So I would, I would go stand under Josh McAllister's ladder there, and, and I would ask him really obnoxious questions. <coughs> like the first thing I ever said to the guy was, so, uh, so what did God teach you in Thailand? You know, because I'm real good at conversation. And come to find out, Come to find out he'd had an awful time in Thailand. His team had like turned on each other and they, they hated each other and he didn't trust humans anymore and didn't really want to talk to me at all. So he finally gets me to leave him alone by telling me a, a list of books I should read. One of those books is a book that changed my life. It's called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger has been described a few times as one of the most important books in Ameri American Christianity in the 20th century. Uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger was written by a dude named Ron Sider. He's probably really old, probably doesn't want to be called a dude. A guy, a, a Christian economist named Ron Sider. And the first section of the book takes you through Scripture and shows you this really consistent call in Scripture to be concerned about the poor, to take care of them, and, and things like that, which for me blew my mind. Um, but it is one of the most common themes in Scripture. 
Y'all probably knew that. The second section, he leans into his training as an economist, right? And he shows um, what global poverty looks like and how pervasive it is and how much of a problem it is. And, uh, and it just, it, it really, really kind of blew my mind, you know? Rich Christians in an age of hunger. When Ben invited me to come speak, I initially thought, you know what? I should talk and try and convince them that God cares about the global poor. It didn't take me long to realize that message would probably be wasted on this congregation. But, but I, I, think, I think there's this thing that happens to us, you know. I think those of us that do care about our poor neighbors, our poor brothers and sisters around the planet, it's not that we think we're not called to figure out what we can do to help our global neighbors. I think it's that we're like, maybe a little pessimistic about it. Maybe you would use a different word. But I, I think a lot of us, a lot of us wonder, is there actually hope of helping our global neighbors? Is there actually hope of making progress on global poverty? A lot of us have noticed, you know, maybe we don't know the details, but we've got some sense that the developed world, the developed states, have been trying to help developing states for decades, since like World War II or something, right? And it sure looks to me like there's still a whole bunch of poor countries out there, you know? And I, I mean, again, maybe we don't know the details, but we've got some sense that hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent on this issue. And, you know, I got a map, and there's still a whole lot of poor countries out there. Is there hope to help this issue, which, which isn't an issue, like we, we call it an issue, it's people, right? Is, is there hope? You might guess that I'm here today because I think the answer is yes. Spoilers! Um, I, want to tell you, I want to tell you a story. I got to hang out with some people that worked at Oxfam once, and I felt pretty cool hanging out with them. And, and they told me this story. They said, they said, years ago, there was an earthquake in Pakistan. And I didn't get the details on which earthquake. But they said, so everybody's responding. You know, the global community responds. They're bringing in relief, trying to just keep water so people can drink water and rice and stuff so people can survive long enough to rebuild, right? Actually, that aspect of global relief, the globe is like not terrible at. So Oxfam gets there, and they set up something that, some sort of thing you could log into that frankly sounds like a glorified spreadsheet. And they, and they would go around to all these different nonprofits, these NGOs, and these um, international bodies like the, you know, the United Nations was there. I'm sure USAID and the United States military was there. Uh, the Red Cross was certainly there. They would go to all these groups and say, hey, when you make a delivery to such and such community, just log in to this um, little database thing and make a note of it so that everybody else knows that you did that. The Oxfam people, they told me, they said, as they went around, every single group that they talked to said, people are dying in the streets. We don't have time to fill out your little spreadsheet. As you can imagine, that means that in many of these disasters and in many situations, that means in one town, you get way too much rice, way too much bottled water, because four different agencies deliver rice and bottled water to the same town, and nobody realizes that the town two miles down the road has, has gotten nothing, right? It's true, we have spent hundreds of billion dollars. In the late 90s, people started to put this stuff together and realize, wait a second, 
we need to coordinate a little better. And there were lots of other things that had been learned in the 40, 50 years before then. In the late 90s, a lot of academics, a lot of professionals had been working on these issues. A lot of big organizations start having these high-level meetings, right? They start having these high-level meetings, and they, they coalesce into something that happened around the year 2000. Uh, they happened around the year 2000. The United Nations released something called the Millennium Development Goals. The Millennium Development Goals, can we get that slide, Chris? Can we get that slide, Chris? The Millennium Development Goals are eight goals that the world wanted to work on from 2000 to 2015. The goal was to achieve these by 2015. Some, and a lot of them are pretty easy to understand. Number two there, for example, achieve universal primary education. Uh, achieve universal primary education. That just means by 2015, we want to make sure every kid that's born in the world goes to primary school, to elementary school, as we call it in the United States, right? Nice and easy to understand. These goals were set, um, some of them are measured. This will be helpful to you to know here in a minute. The goal was to accomplish them by 2015, and a lot of them were based on numbers from 1990. By the year 2000, when these goals came out, um, they felt like they had the best numbers they were going to get from 1990, so it was a good baseline for the, for the globe. Um, let's go ahead and look at the first goal and, and talk about it a little bit. The first goal, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. Extreme poverty is a technical term. In the United States, when we talk about poverty, we talk about relative poverty, and the, there's some magic number. If you're below this income, all of a sudden you're poor and you weren't before. That number is based on relative income based in the United States. Extreme poverty is an actual, it's a line that we use globally. In the year 2000, that line was one U.S. dollar a day. Anyone who was living in the globe trying to live on less than one U.S. dollar a day was con considered to be in extreme poverty because there ain't nowhere on the planet you can live a life of dignity with one dollar a day, even in 2000. Couldn't happen. So, so y'all know the goal was to take whatever number there, you can see that, eradicate it. In the year 1990, there were about 2 billion people on the planet in extreme poverty, 1.9 billion actually. And then the goal was by 2015 to completely eradicate that so that no one was quite that poor. There's something interesting about this number, actually, 2 billion. There have been 2 billion people in extreme poverty almost since there had been 2 billion people. And it's, it was a real, uh, real tough nut to crack. Nobody could make much progress on that number. So when there were like 2.5 billion people on the planet, that meant that about 80% of the planet uh, was in extreme poverty because there were 2 billion people in extreme poverty, right? That's terrible, 80% of the planet. Then as the years go on, by the time there's, say, 6 billion people on Earth, well, there's still that 2 billion people in extreme poverty, which you might think, well, that's, that's good because it means that, what's that, I guess two-thirds of the planet now isn't in extreme poverty, and, and that's true. But you might also think, hey, that's bad. Like, why is it that 2 billion that's stuck there in, in extreme poverty? Like, what's, what's the deal? For decades, no one had been able to make any progress on that. Well, the Millennium Development Goals come along, and we say, we are going to eliminate that category by 2015. Hey, Chris, did we achieve that goal? No, we didn't achieve that goal. Hey, let's look at goal number four, Chris. What happens next? All right, all right, number four. We're going to reduce child mortality. Okay, reduce the percentage of children who die in their first five years. But I'm really excited about children dying. Reduce the percentage of children who die in their first five years by two-thirds. Now, in 1990, in 1990, 12.7 million kids died before they turned five. 
Like, that's a lot, right? So the goal by 2015, the world said, we want to get that down to two, uh, reduce that by two-thirds, so it's around 4.2 million a year. That would be tremendous progress. Remember, that's every single year. Hey, Chris, did we achieve that goal? No, we did not achieve that goal. It might seem like I came here saying, is there hope? And I'm saying, no, there ain't no hope, because the best efforts the global community could come up with didn't achieve their goals. And frankly, in 2015, you know, it came time to report on these big global goals the whole world, global community had been working on, the Gates Foundation was working on, you know, the United States government had been really participating in this, the United Nations, everybody had been working on this goal. So in 2015, the UN puts out a report summarizing their goals, which was, you know, not a secret to anybody, that almost none of the goals had been achieved. And so, you know, at the average person picks up their maybe still newspaper, and they read that, and it seems like more bad news. Well, let's look at this a little more closely. Chris, let's look at number one again. Eliminate the percentage of people living in extreme poverty. I told you there were 1.9 billion people in extreme poverty in 1990, and we were trying to get rid of that. We did not get to zero people in extreme poverty by 2015. Didn't get that far. But we did get down to 869 million, which you might notice means that there were a billion people no longer in extreme poverty. A billion people. A billion. Right? Sounds to me, that seems like progress. It did, it did not, that's true, technically achieve the goal that was set in a committee somewhere, and it's good to have goals, but it did lift a billion people out of extreme poverty. And more impressively, it finally started to make progress on that two billion that had been intractable for decades. That's good news. Chris, can we look at the other one? Reduce the percentage of children who die in their first five years by two-thirds. So we wanted to go from 12.7 million kids dying every year down to just a hair over four million. We didn't get that far. We didn't get to four million. But we did get to six million. We did get to six. Which means that every year there's about six and a half million extra kids who are still alive. Every year. Every year, year over year. By now, here in, in real life, in our life, in 2020, there's, that means there's over 100 million people who are still alive because of that goal. Because the global community got together and said, we can do something about this stuff. Y'all, I know that a lot of you think about your role in God's work in the world. A lot of you... Maybe, maybe you don't think of it in those terms every day, but I know that a lot of you get up out of bed in the morning and you go and you try and do what God wants you to do in the world. And I know that a lot of times you're discouraged and you're tired because you see things that aren't working. And sometimes, sometimes it makes you wonder was Jesus, when Jesus talked about a new reality coming into this reality, was he, was he like right? Or was he talking about a different planet? Which isn't helped by the fact that half the time Jesus seems like a crazy person when he talks, right? Like, you wonder, is Jesus talking about real progress and our reality? I'm fortunate. Um, I get to get out of bed every morning um, when I when I finally get out of bed, excited about 
what I get to do through the day because I know that what I do participates in the kingdom of God. I know that what I'm going to do through the day may not be exciting because it's often actually spreadsheets, lots and lots and lots of spreadsheets, but I know that it adds up to the kingdom of God and I get to participate in that. I told you earlier, I kind of wear two hats in my life, right? I've got this, um, like, especially this youth pastor thing I do, and then I've got this other thing I do with Inalienable. But it's not that I'm, I'm not two different people, right? When I go to my youth, I go to my youth, and I tell them about the kingdom of God, because that's basically all I ever say. I go to my youth, and I tell them about the kingdom of God. I say, guys, there are dark things in the world, and Jesus is shining light on them. I say, there's broken stuff in the world, and Jesus is fixing it, and invites you to participate in fixing it, right? I know these 13-year-olds, these 14-year-olds are mostly thinking there are bullies at school. And they're right. That is part of the dark stuff in human society. They're thinking, my mom is always irrationally angry at me for no, re- for no reason, you know? And, and I know that I'm always irrationally angry, and I, I'm not even sure I know why, you know? They point to like this, this sort of stuff, right? and they're right about all that stuff. Jesus is slowly but surely healing that stuff in my mind. But I know that, like... All things considered, that's like small potatoes, right? Because I know there are people who can't send their kids to school because of some government thing, which means that kids are destined to have lives of poverty where they're going to die young. And, and I know that there are, there are parents who are just trying to do good work in the world, but they'll never get a good job for stupid reasons. And I know there are, there are women who are being bought and sold inside the migrant communities that, that I work with. I know, I know the world is really dark. So when I tell them the kingdom of God is at hand, I'm thinking about that stuff, right? And then I go to Inalienable, right? And Inalienable is on paper a secular organization. So when I get over here, I'm asking, like, how are budgets being met? Are, um, hey, uh, Marari, what's going on with that client in um, Folio 86, you know? And I'm hearing stuff, and I'm thinking about how the Mexican government works and things like this, right? Which is not exciting. And then they tell me, hey, somebody else... Um, got their legal identity today. And I know that that sounds really boring, but I know that it means all sorts of things just became possible for this human being. All of a sudden, they've regained a tremendous amount of dignity and uh, the normal human agency most of us expect in the world. And so when I hear that, I'm excited. I don't say, praise God, the kingdom of God is at hand. But you know what? I'm thinking it. I'm thinking it. And I'm excited that I get to get out of bed every day and participate in that stuff. Y'all, um, some of you have things that you, you know you're participating in the kingdom of God. And, um, and it's often not very flashy. If you don't have something like that, I would invite you to, to consider getting involved with it, what an alienable is doing. We're going to talk about it later. And if you do have something... And if you do have ways that you're like participating in the work of Jesus in the world and you're discouraged and you're tired because mostly what we get is bad news, right? And mostly in our daily lives, we run into frustrations. I want you, I want you to have hope. I want you to have faith that Jesus was right, that the kingdom of God is at hand and the darkness in the world is being pushed back. You may not see it every day, but I'm telling you, it's out there. Take courage. Jesus was telling us the truth. Let's pray.
Jesus, we come to you today. We gather to celebrate, to celebrate you, first and foremost, to celebrate what you did in the world in your incarnation and just being born and coming to us in the teachings and all the things you, you taught us to do, teaching us about the kingdom, and then in the way that in some fashion or another you started to bring the kingdom in your resurrection. Jesus, we gather every day because we're shocked and delighted at what you did. And we gather this morning to be reminded of the good news that your kingdom is coming. We gather this morning to be reminded and to stiffen our hearts in the hope that, that you're telling us the truth, Lord. We come today as people of faith, people who trust you. God, you know what it's like out there because you've been out there. Give us courage through this week and in coming weeks to participate in your good work. Amen.